Hello, I'm Merrick Schneider. Welcome to this podcast of articles from the Wall Street Journal, a presentation of Ayers LA. You are listening to this recording, which is provided for the use of those who are blind or print impaired. Materials or items read on Ayers LA are the copyrighted property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Today's first article is titled, Confession of a Failed Steps Fanatic by Katie Rofi. Then Eric Wallerstein has an article, Cash is King Now, But Investors Face Risk of Being Stung. Andrea Peterson and Julie Wernow wrote an article, Turning to Cannabis to Help Relieve Anxiety. We'll follow that up with an article by Stephen Davidoff Solomon, don't hire my anti-Semitic law students. And then Alex Janan has an article, The Secret to Living to 100, It's Not Just Healthy Habits. All these articles are from recent editions of the Wall Street Journal. So let's begin with today's first article, Confession of a Failed Steps Fanatic. Everyone knows a Steps Fanatic. She glows with mastery she is potentially adding years to her life. There is a giant math problem looming over her day, which she takes enormous pleasure in methodically attacking. How will she get to 15,000 steps? If it is raining, she walks on a treadmill in a windowless room. The steps, of course, are not just steps. She is accruing immortality. She is winning. She is beating the sedentary, the paunchy, the person who is curled up on a couch reading a book when they look up and it is dark. There are a lot of people under the sun to get more steps than. Steps counting is a distillation of competitiveness and achievement. The steps counter can't just think to herself, I walked a lot. She needs a number, a ranking, a score, an exact representation of a lot. Are there some days or even parts of days where the steps fanatic is not thinking about steps on some level of a very active and vital mind? Are there days when the steps fanatic thinks, today I'm going to take a long bath and lie in bed and stare at my dog? No, there can be no such days unless she has darted out early and gotten the steps. I confess to be an aspiring and mostly failed steps fanatic. I would like to get 15,000 steps a day, but I rarely do and sometimes forget to even try. You can recognize people who count steps from the devices that measure them. A sleek plastic bracelet, a chunky ring, a watch. You'll notice these devices poking from under the sleeves of unlikely people. Poets, workaholics, assorted others who do not seem like they would have the time or inclination to count their steps. As someone who cheated at jogging in gym class, I would seem to be one of those unlikely step counters. These devices have cyborg resonances. They begin to feel like extension of ourselves, integral to how we move through the world. I am not sure the steps fanatic could be expected to carry on if her Fitbit and all the Fitbits in the world suddenly vanished, to put one foot in front of the other without the cosmos giving her credit. Even the aspiring Steps fanatic feels a bit lost when her ring breaks in the days before the replacement arrives. And if her footprint has vanished, as if without her steps she is no longer walking the earth, 
There is a loneliness she feels without the ring and absence. What is seductive about counting steps is that there is a purpose scaffold into your day. Even walking from your bed to your coffee maker, you are pursuing a goal. You are achieving. I am simultaneously attracted and repelled by this brisk efficiency. The clever use of the downtimes, the errands, the dreamy in-betweens of life. There is a kind of go-getter existential philosophy to it. As one steps fanatic told me, little failures or setbacks can be repurposed into steps. You forgot an ingredient at the store? Yay, more steps. You can't get an Uber? More steps. In some sense, this is kind of brilliant. You've turned popping out to get scallions into an accomplishment. There is, of course, a kind of walking that is lost. The dreamily aimless wandering through a summer night, pausing to eavesdrop on an interesting breakup, the drifter who stumbles on a man playing cello on the street and stops. It is impossible to imagine Baudelaire's Fonet taking in the Paris scene, merging with the street and its crowds, checking his Fitbit. These days I go on walks with many of my friends instead of long lunches or drinks because we are busy and mindful of steps. I love these walks, but am not very good at them. I wear impractical shoes. I see a bench in the shade and wish we could sit. I haven't quite absorbed the efficient ethos, the responsible healthy use of time and space that walk socializing involves. I slightly miss the days when we would gossip in clouds of smoke outside parties. Still, a 4,000-step day brings an inevitable sense of failure. My ring gleams tolerantly at me with the hope that tomorrow I will do better. It says, gently, time to stretch your legs a bit, and by says I mean sends a message through the app to float onto my phone screen. Recently, a close friend and I went on a long, winding walk through the park. Afterward, my friend texted me a screenshot of her step count. I texted her a screenshot of mine. Both were well above 15,000, and I felt a warm, spreading sense of well-being. Victory is ours. The vogue for step counting seems to spring from our obsession with productivity, our work ethic gone wild, our need to always be accomplishing and meeting goals, or else we are lost, adrift. The apothesis of this impulse to maximize efficiency is probably the treadmill desk. It may also be that unlike global warming, political chaos, pandemics, wildfires, disease, and the inevitable deterioration of our own bodies, steps are one thing we can control. I remember in the French children's book, The Little Prince, there is a tiny planet where the one inhabitant, the businessman, spends all of his time counting the stars that he believes he owns. He says, I am concerned with matters of consequence. There is no time for idle dreaming in my life. If Antoine de Saint-Exupéry were writing today, there would be someone walking around a tiny planet eternally counting their steps. The little prince would marvel at the vanity and futility of this bourgeois adult preoccupation, this sad counting that excludes love and beauty and human connection. Still, at a party in my garden, standing over the cheese plates with dried figs and Aperol spritzes, 
I am pleased to notice the ring on one of my former students. We briefly discuss it, but don't say much. We are like fellow travelers, fellow cult members. The spark of recognition is enough. Time to stretch your legs a bit. And now cash is king, but investors face risk of being stung. Cash has rarely been this hot on Wall Street. Financial advisors warn holding too much can burn a hole in your portfolio. With markets rocky and cash earning 5% or more, investors have boosted their holdings of money market funds to a near-record $5.6 trillion, according to the Investment Company Institute. Both individuals and institutional investors are piling in. Asset managers now have about one-fifth of their portfolios in money market funds, State Street data show. Cash was trash for years on Wall Street, where low interest rates left investors buying every dip, saying there was no alternative to stocks. The prospect of a prolonged period of higher rates has upended that thinking, buffeted both stocks and bonds while increasing the returns offered by some of the safest, shortest-term investments such as money markets. Yet many advisors caution that fees, taxes, and inflation all undermine those returns. And one of the biggest costs is opportunity. By pouring money into cash, investors miss out on potential gains from holding a broad portfolio of stocks, bonds, and other riskier investments. Money market funds are a rational place to be for the next six months. But over the long term, taking risks pays you more, said Wiley Tollette, Chief Investment Officer for Franklin Templeton Investment Solutions. Keeping any more than a small portfolio to cash in your portfolio for any longer than the short term will ultimately cost you thousands or millions of dollars. Though often treated as akin to a bank account, the funds differ from normal savings accounts and other cash-like investments, such as certificates of deposit. They typically lend cash to banks overnight, backed by treasuries, park it at the Federal Reserve, or invest in treasury bills maturing in a few months. Still, they are considered equivalent to cash because investors generally expect to get their money back whenever they ask. To that end, the funds try to maintain a net asset value of a dollar a share. Yields fluctuate with benchmark rates set by the Fed. Now, the $265 billion Vanguard Federal Money Market Fund yields 5.3%, earnings that are distributed via dividends. The popular Fidelity Government Money Market Fund yields 4.99%, though requires no minimum amount to invest in the fund. Vanguard asks for at least $3,000. Though considered to be among the safest of all investments, deposits in the funds aren't insured, and they occasionally have gone haywire in times of stress. Shares of one fund fell below a dollar apiece when Lehman Brothers failed in 2008, prompting a federal backstop. Regulators also stepped in, to backstop the funds during the market's turmoil of the pandemic's early days. That episode prompted a rewriting of the rules guiding money market funds for the third time in 15 years. Those considerations haven't driven away investors. The Fed's most aggressive interest rate campaign in decades 
has lifted rates near the returns many investors would expect from their portfolio on an average year. With the central bank expected to hold rates near this level for some time, money market funds are now considered a viable investment rather than just a place to stuff cash. The influx into money markets also accelerated this year after the failure of Silicon Valley Bank left depositors worried about how protected their money was in banks. The Fed Fund's rate is likely to be between 3% to 4% for the long run, stock valuations are lofty, and bond volatility doesn't look like it's abating anytime soon, said John Tobin, Chief Investment Officer for Dreyfus, one of the world's largest money market fund managers. If we are delivering 4% returns in a world of 2 and change percent inflation, I think cash becomes a real asset class and we hold on to a lot of the assets under management we've accumulated. But advisors warn that investors should carefully consider how much of their portfolio to park in cash. Since its 1981 inception, the Vanguard Fund has returned an average of 3.9% a year or a cumulative 402% through the end of September 2023. The S&P 500 has returned nearly 11% a year and about 3,500% through the same period. The Bloomberg United States Aggregate Bond Index returned 6.8% annually, or 1,500% in total. The S&P 500 is still up about 9.2% this year despite rising rates. Meanwhile, the benchmark bond index has lost 2.7% as longer-term bond prices have fallen due to climbing yields. Fees are also relatively high. Investors pay annual expenses based on how much they have invested in a fund. Many large money market funds charge 0.5% a year in fees, if not more, to support upkeep including administration, trading costs, and employee salaries. Some stock funds, such as the Spider S&P 500 ETF, charge less than a tenth, less than one tenth of a percentage point annually. Those fees drag on returns over time. Investing $10,000 into a Bank of New York Mellon fund at the 0.33% rate charged to wealth management clients would cost $418 in fees over a 10-year period the same amount at the outside investor's rate of 0.58% would cost to $726. There's a psychological component to seeing 5.5% in a money market fund after stocks and bonds got slapped in the face over the past couple of years, said Alex McGrath, Chief Investment Officer for Greenville, South Carolina-based North End Private Wealth. But if you take all your chips off the table, that'll hurt you when the market recovers. Taxes are another consideration and often a big one. Interest payments on money market funds are generally taxed as ordinary income, not at dividend or capital gains rates. How the income is taxed at the federal or state level will depend on the investments a fund holds. Interest from United States Treasury debt, for example, is taxable at the federal level but not for states. However, many government money market funds now hold repurchase agreements, which are generally taxable at the state level. 
In other words, it is complicated. Taxes can lower headline yields for those who aren't careful. Simon Hamilton, managing director at the Wise Investor Group of Raymond James, said he tells clients that having a large cash position is a bet on rates going higher down the road. That might happen, but they should be, should be considering locking in some of bonds' relatively high yields today. There's an old expression, you date cash, you don't marry it, he said. And now, turning to cannabis to help relieve anxiety. Lots of people with anxiety are counting on cannabis' ability to treat their symptoms. There's a problem. The science shows that it probably doesn't help, and it may make those symptoms worse. Cannabis companies have promoted their products as helpful for anxiety, making for a potentially lucrative market. Anxious consumers have turned to weed and edibles for relief as treatments for their ailments have become harder to find. The number of available and affordable therapists badly lags demand, and traditional medications don't work for everyone. Driving both users' and businesses' hopes is a belief that pot can make us less anxious. Yet little independent scientific evidence shows that cannabis is an effective treatment for anxiety problems, and some studies have found it can worsen symptoms. Researchers say this is particularly true for products high in THC, the substance responsible for marijuana's intoxicating effects. A survey last year found that nearly two-thirds of people said they would prefer to use cannabis rather than pharmaceuticals to treat a medical issue. According to the survey conducted by the Harris Poll, on behalf of cannabis company Cureleaf of almost 2,000 adults who are at least 21 years old, and among the 54% of respondents who said they had ever used cannabis, 41% of them said they consumed cannabis to reduce anxiety. I have patients who use it every day. They say it really helps said Dr. Beth Salcedo, a psychiatrist and medical director of the Ross Center in Washington who specializes in treating anxiety disorders. My message is that if it were really working for you, you wouldn't be here with me. When Salcedo talks with patients about what their anxiety was like before cannabis, she said they usually report that their anxiety is unchanged. Any transient relief they feel may be due in part to marijuana's high, she said. Cannabis companies have promoted the idea that their products can help anxiety. That's a potentially lucrative market for an industry where profits have fallen short of many entrepreneurs' lofty expectations. Legal cannabis revenue was expected to reach $30 billion a year by now, according to estimates from Harvard University economist Jeffrey Myron. It's only half that figure. Earlier bets on selling legal pot as a solve for pain and post-traumatic stress disorder haven't proven as profitable as hoped. Erwin David Simon, chief executive of Tilray Brands, the first cannabis company to trade publicly on a major United States stock exchange, said in an interview he thinks cannabis can be a useful alternative to pharmaceuticals for many conditions, including anxiety. He said it's a promising market that produces repeat customers. Is it to replace alcohol, pain for cancer patients, sleep, anxiety? I think it's absolutely for all of the above, he said.
Busy Phillips, the actor, author, and influencer, described using marijuana for her panic attacks and anxiety in a 2020 love, 2021 live stream event that was sponsored by Cureleaf, the largest cannabis company in the United States. I immediately felt better but present in myself, but like the anxiety attack, the edge had been taken off. I was calm, said Phillips, a mother of two. Cureleaf said Phillips wasn't paid for her appearance. Through a publicist, she declined to comment. Joining Phillips on the webcast was Stacia Woodcock, then a pharmacist and dispensary manager for Cureleaf. During the event, Woodcock said that anxiety, as well as autoimmune disorders and arthritis, can overwhelm the endocannabinoid system in the brain and body. This system is involved in learning, memory, mood, and many other functions. So you supplement with cannabis and it brings your body back into balance, said Woodcock, according to the video recording. Woodcock said in an email that she recalls that the intention of the webcast was to discuss the stigma of cannabis use and its potential benefits for some people and not as a promotion of it as a treatment for anxiety. Woodcock is no longer employed by Curely full-time, but works as a pharmacist for the company on contract. Anxiety is one of the most common symptoms that visitors to Curaleaf's dispensaries are looking to address, according to a company spokeswoman. She noted that several states have made anxiety a qualifying condition to receive a medical marijuana card. Curaleaf doesn't target people with anxiety or promote cannabis specifically for anxiety, she said, and recommends that people consult with a doctor before choosing cannabis to address any specific need, she said. At the same time, cannabis companies train their retail staff, dubbed bud tenders, to recommend products depending on customers' needs, ailments, or moods. Ann Hassel became a $15 an hour bud tender for a New England treatment access dispensary in 2015, leaving a higher paying job as a physical therapist because she believed pot could help people suffering from various medical conditions. Hassel, 56 years old, worked at the Northampton, Massachusetts dispensary until 2017, when she quit over what she perceived as dangerous sales practice by her employer. She has since spoken out against the cannabis industry. Hassel said company material stated that an ETA couldn't give medical advice. She said bud tenders also received a chart from management recommending ways to guide customers toward certain pot products depending on their ailment. The Wall Street Journal reviewed both documents. The chart, labeled Need a Product Guidance, advised bud tenders to suggest products with high levels of THC for stress that manifest with headaches and lower THC indica strains for customers trying to get away from anxiety meds or sleeping meds. Kevin Fisher, a native founder, said he couldn't comment because he is no longer affiliated with the company. A spokesman for Nita's owner, cannabis company Parallel, said, We have serious concerns about the accuracy of the information you have received and have no further comment. Two recent studies show the potential problems with treating anxiety with cannabis. Cannabis use was significantly associated with increased odds of developing anxiety conditions, 
according to a review of research published in 2020 in the Canadian Journal of Psychiatry. Recent cannabis use was associated with more severe symptoms in people with anxiety and mood disorders, according to another review published in 2018 in the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. The industry has funded its own studies. In one study published in 2022, researchers affiliated with Harvest Medicine, a chain of cannabis clinics and a telehealth service in Canada, found that people using medical cannabis for anxiety saw clinically significant improvement on a measure of anxiety. In some surveys, cannabis users have reported that they have felt relief from anxiety symptoms after consuming cannabis. There is some evidence that CBD, which is a non-intoxicated substance derived from cannabis, may relieve anxiety symptoms. But the science is limited. Companies and scientists say federal restrictions, which may soon lift, have hampered research on cannabis. Using cannabis regularly comes with a significant risk of addiction. Among people who reported using marijuana in the past year, about 30% have cannabis use disorder, according to an analysis of federal data. Marijuana use can become a disorder when people need to use an increasing amount to get the same effect and when the use interferes with work and relationships, among other symptoms. Marijuana users also run a higher risk of delusions and psychosis, researchers found. Jordan Davidson, 22, was diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder as a kid growing up in Connecticut. In high school, he started using high-potency THC products, which at first, he said, made him have fewer anxious thoughts. But soon, when he didn't have marijuana, he felt like his skin was crawling, he couldn't sleep. Ultimately, he decided to get help and hasn't used cannabis since 2018, he said. He joined a group dedicated to convincing lawmakers in Washington that the substance is dangerous. I feel like I was duped into believing it's not addictive, it's just a plant, it will cure your anxiety, he said. We were played. And now, Stephen Davidoff Solomon's Don't Hire My Anti-Semitic Law Students. I teach corporate law at the University of California, Berkeley, and I'm an advisor to the Jewish Law Students Association. My students are largely engaged and well-prepared, and I regularly recommend them to legal employers. But if you don't want to hire people who advocate hate and practice discrimination, don't hire some of my students. Anti-Semitic conduct is nothing new on university campuses, including here at Berkeley. Last year, Berkeley's law Students for Justice in Palestine asked other student groups to adopt a bylaw that banned supporters of Israel from speaking at events. It excluded any speaker who expressed and continued to hold views or host, sponsor, promote events in support of Zionism, the apartheid state of Israel, and the occupation of Palestine. Nine student groups adopted the bylaw. Signers included the Middle Eastern and North African Law Students Association, the Queer Caucus, and the Women of Berkeley Law. The bylaw caused an uproar. It was rightly criticized for creating Jew-free zones. Our dean, a diehard liberal, admirably condemned it but said freedom, free speech principles tied his hands. The campus groups had the legal right to pick or exclude 
speakers based on their views. The bylaw remains, and 11 other groups subsequently adopted it. You don't need an advanced degree to see why this bylaw is wrong. For millennia, Jews have prayed next year in Jerusalem, capturing how central the idea of a homeland is to Jewish identity. By excluding Jews from their homeland, after Jews have already endured thousands of years of persecution, these organizations are engaging in anti-Semitism and dehumanizing Jews. They didn't include Jewish law students in the conversation when circulating the Bible. They also singled out Jews for wanting what we all should have, a homeland and haven from persecution. The student conduct of Berkeley is part of the broader attitude against Jews on university campuses that made last week's massacre possible. It is shameful and has been tolerated for too long. It's time for the adults to take over, and that includes law firms looking for graduates to hire. The law firm Winston & Strawn revoked an employment offer for a student at New York University Law School who wrote an open letter that pointedly refused to condemn Hamas's attack. The letter denounced Israel instead and asserted that its regimen of state-sanctioned violence created the conditions that made resistance necessary. The NYU Law School dean had issued a tepid response to the massacres, but after the student's anti-Israel screen caused an uproar, he made a second, more forceful statement condemning Hamas's attack. Legal employers in the recruiting process should do what Winston and Strawn did. Treat these law students like the adults they are. If a student endorses hate, dehumanization, or anti-Semitism, don't hire them. When students face consequences for their actions, they straighten up. If you are a legal employer, when you interview students from Berkeley, Harvard, NYU, or any other law school this year, ask them what organizations they belong to. Ask if they support discriminatory bylaws or other acts and resolutions blaming Jews and Israelis for the Hamas massacre. If a student endorses hatred, it isn't only your right, but your duty not to hire them. Do you want your clients represented by someone who condones these monstrous crimes? And now, the secret to living to 100. It's not just healthy habits. If you want to live to your 100th birthday, healthy habits can only get you so far. Research is making clearer the role that genes play in living to very old age. Habits like getting enough sleep, exercising, and eating a healthy diet can help you stave off disease and live longer. Yet when it comes to living beyond 90, genetics start to play a trump card, say researchers who study aging. Some people have this idea, if I do everything right, diet and exercise, I can live to be 150. And that's really not correct, says Robert Young, who directs a team of researchers at the nonprofit scientific organization Gerontology Research Group. About 25% of your ability to live to 90 is determined by genetics, said Dr. Thomas Pearls, a professor of medicine at Boston University who leads the New England Centarian Study, which has followed centarians and their family members since 1995. By age 100, it's roughly 50% genetic, he estimates, and by around 106, it's 75%. Knowing what enables some people to live very long lives has consequences for the rest of us. 
Continuing research into very old age may help provide in insight that could eventually be used to develop drugs or identify lifestyle changes to help people live healthier for longer, said James Kirkland, president of the American Federation for Aging Research. Centarians make up a growing share of the United States population. There are about 109,000 of them living in the country in 2023, according to Census Bureau projections, up from about 65,000 10 years ago, thanks in part to decades of advances in medicine and public health. Despite a decline in life expectancy, which dropped to 76.4 in 2021, Pearls estimates that roughly 20% of the population has the genetic makeup that could get them to 100 if they also made consistent healthy choices. Not only do these people live longer, but data suggests they manage to avoid or delay age-related diseases like cancer, dementia, and cardiovascular disease longer than the general population. Among the New England study participants, 15% are escapers, or people with no demonstrable disease at the age of 100. Some 43% are delayers, those who didn't develop age-related disease until age 80 or after. Chuck Ullman, who is 97 and lives in a retirement community in Thousand Oaks, California, said he is free of health problems, aside from a sore right shoulder from a recent electric biking accident, has no desire to live to a particular age. He hopes to live as long as he feels good and can do the things he loves, such as woodworking, attending political discussion groups, and getting dinner with some of his many friends. There are 350 residents here, and I have 350 friends, Omen says of his community. He also spends time with Betty, his wife of 77 years. My objective is to enjoy each and every day that comes along. Researchers have identified some genes and combinations of them that are associated with longevity, such as the presence of a variant of what's known as the apolipoprotein E gene called E2, a trait thought to help protect against Alzheimer's. They emphasize each trait is a small piece in a large complicated puzzle which can factor in socioeconomic status, race and ethnicity, and climate. Living past 100 requires a combination of many genetic variants, each with a relatively modest effect, says Pearl. Gene variants that offer protective qualities, such as repairing DNA damage, are especially beneficial, he said. People who are curious about how long they might live should start by looking at their family history. Your relatives' lifespans are one of the strongest predictors of longevity, says Pearls. Omen, the 97-year-old, says his mother lived to 90. If multiple members of your family have lived into very advanced age, you potentially want a much greater chance of having purchased the right lottery ticket. Neurologist Dr. Claudia Kawas has been tracking the habits of the oldest old, those older than 90 in Southern California since 2003, as part of a study at the University of California, Irvine. She and a team of researchers have found links between longevity and even short amounts of exercise, social activities such as going to church, and modest caffeine and coffee intake. Superagers, or people over the age of 80 whose cognitive abilities are on par with those 20 
to 30 years younger reported having more warm, trusting, high-quality relationships with other people than cognitively normal participants, investors at Northwestern University found. Keeping in good relationships could be one key to lifespan, says Amanda cook Maher, a neuropsychologist at the University of Michigan and lead author of the study. Your outlook also matters. Harvard researchers identified a link between optimism and longer lifespans in women across racial and ethnic groups. Among the study participants, the 25% who were most optimistic had a greater likelihood of living beyond 90 years than the least optimistic 25%. According to the 2022 study published in the Journal of the American Geriatric Society, Jeanne Case, 100, she said she has taken a glass half full approach to life. She plans to outlive her colon and skin cancers and keep enjoying swing music and Mexican food as long as she feels physically and mentally well. A day in her life can include walking a mile, conversing with her writing groups, or noshing on fish tacos with friends. The Irvine, California resident has always exercised but also enjoys indulgences like cheesecake and lemon bars. I try not to let stress bother me, she says. That brings us to the end of today's articles. I'm Merrick Schneider, and I'll be back soon with more articles. Thank you for listening.